Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Team Sideline Podcast, the podcast dedicated to hosting meaningful conversations surrounding the unique challenges of sidelined athletes. This podcast is hosted by Sideline USA, a nonprofit organization serving, resourcing, and advocating for sideline student athletes nationwide. In this episode, we're discussing the athlete experience with chronic illness. Joining us today are three athletes coping with chronic illness. Isabella Montgomery, medically retired lacrosse player, Campbell Weed, medically retired rower, and Zoe Schweitzer, medically retired gymnast. We explore the physical, mental, and social aspects of dealing with chronic illness as an athlete, tips for navigating the physical challenges, learning how to advocate for yourself, and managing the tension of the athletic mentality with the realistic need to listen to your body. We cover various psychological components, such as the impact of a lack of understanding from others, the burden of self-doubt, the often unpredictable and confusing nature of chronic illness, as well as feelings of weakness and loss of athletic identity. We discuss insights into coping with feelings of isolation, changes in relationships, and how to identify your true support network. And we wrap up the discussion by talking about medical retirement, factors involved in the decision to medically retire, and the pros and cons of staying involved with your sport. I personally learned so much through this discussion and have incredible respect for these three athletes and all the invisible battles they have fought for so long. The way each of them has found new perspective and hope in life through their experience with chronic illness is nothing short of inspiring. I wish this subject was talked about more, and to our listeners today, I want to encourage you to share this podcast within your network of athletes, athletic trainers, and coaches. There are athletes out there who need our informed understanding, our empathy, and our support. Thanks for listening today. Let's get going. Bella, Campbell, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us today. We were just talking before we started recording, and I'm so excited to do this podcast specifically on athletes with chronic illness because as I have searched through the internet trying to find resources for such athletes, I came up with pretty much zero, and you guys confirmed that, yes, we have we never found anything either. So I feel like this podcast is going to be a tremendous tool um, to get the conversation started. Hopefully that's just it. It's getting the conversation started where more awareness can come for athletes who are coping with chronic illness because it is an, a layered and additional set of um, adjustment when you're an athlete continuing to try to compete. And then for those who are medically retiring because of chronic illness, it's a whole nother ball game there as well. So thanks for joining us today. And um, I'd like to each of you to take a minute, share your name, your sport you played, the last team you played with, um, how long you've been dealing with chronic illness. And uh, if you want, if you feel comfortable sharing what chronic illness that you deal with. Uh, Bella, let's start with you. The last team that I played for was Northern Michigan. I played lacrosse. Um, I've had my chronic illness my whole life, but um, had the most complications with it probably the past few years. I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, so it can, affects all the connective tissue in my body. So I'm Zoe. Uh, the last team I played for was I was on the Ohio State Gymnastics team, um, ended up coaching, and I was diagnosed with my disease. I'm being treated as if I have lupus. Um, they still don't really know what's going on um, when I was 13. And Campbell. Uh, hi, Christine. I just want to thank you so much for having us on. Um, the last team I was on, I was on the University of Virginia women's rowing team. I grew up swimming competitively. I started swimming uh, around the age of seven. And it's interesting looking back, uh, I can start to identify 
hmm, maybe there's something that has been going on for quite a bit, but things started to flare up quite a bit in April of 2021. So that was my senior year of high school um, and affected my collegiate career quite a bit. I was only at Virginia for six weeks, so I never really got that collegiate experience, but looking back, it's all starting to add up. But similarly, uh, as Zoe mentioned, the doctors aren't exactly sure what's happening. They've labeled it as some sort of dysautonomia, but um, there are so many different types and so many different ways it presents. So it's pretty challenging. And I think that's one of the things about chronic illness um, is that it's there's so much uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was coming up upon, not only with my personal experience with friends who struggle with chronic illness, but just also conversations surrounding it is that the difficulty in diagnosing it. I mean, and furthermore, finding the doctors who A, either believe you or B, can help you. And that's just its own process of time. So I'm just kind of curious, just for our listeners' sake who are struggling with chronic illness, each of you, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, like how long did it take you to get your diagnosis? And like, what was that, you know, how long was that middle period where you're just like, what is going on? Or maybe that's still happening. I don't know. But if it might be just helpful to kind of for everyone to be able to empathize with each other about this particular piece of it is that the length of time it takes to start getting help. Um, I was actually fairly lucky and I got diagnosed with the overall hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos fairly early before I had complications. However, this is because my mom got diagnosed with it and it's genetic and it took her 43 years to reach that diagnosis. So then once she had it, sent her kids to the doctor. So I actually was diagnosed with it before I had major complications. When I did start having the side complications, um, the main one took probably about two years to fully diagnose and figure that out. For me, it took a little under a year. So I was still in gymnastics and everything. Um, My hands would swell a lot and I would get sick all the time, like once a month. Um, So a little under a year just a few, my blood work showed that this is, these are the signs for lupus, but I still don't have a definite diagnosis. So I'm being treated for that, but I've tried a few different methods for like healing and whatnot um, and ended up obviously having to end my career due to it. Yeah. It's so interesting because for me, as I had mentioned, you know, you start to look back and in a reflective sense, I was pretty healthy until I was 13. And right around then I grew a lot in a short amount of time. Um, and my muscles couldn't quite keep up. So all the muscles that were supposed to be working weren't working and all the muscles that, you know, were (laughs) not supposed to be in control were in control. And my eighth grade field trip to Washington, DC, I ended up in a wheelchair. Um, I was, I was there and my whole body just spasmed and my mom is a physical therapist and I came back and she goes, I have never seen a back so distorted. Um, so at that time I was, I was swimming and trying to swim and taking breaks and it was very irregular. I would feel great on Monday. I wouldn't feel okay on Tuesday. I would feel terrible on Wednesday. And it was sort of that cyclical nature. Um, and then sophomore year I started rowing. Um, and again, it was kind of that year where I still had some problems. And then junior year, there was, there was a series of probably 12 to 14 months where I felt excellent. Um, and that was really the time where um, people saw the potential in me and I saw the potential in myself and I knew that I could really continue this at the next level. Um, and then my senior year in high school, um, 
I, again, oddly enough, I started, it all started with abdominal pain again. Um, and then I started having pain in my legs and problems with my muscles and my body started to spasm. So I don't, as I had said before, I don't have a clear diagnosis. Um, I know that I have some sort of small fiber neuropathy that they've identified through a skin biopsy. Um, I know that I have some form of dysautonomia and they think I have some form of um, an air and copper metabolism, but how all of those things come together and explain everything that's happened. Um, I don't know if I'll have kind of that realization, um, but I'm lucky now where the doctors are on my team. Um, I start when I first left school, um, I, I went to a rheumatologist who unfortunately said, um, after there's nothing that came on the blood work, it's just stress. It'll get better. Um, and at that point I didn't know what to think. Um, I couldn't advocate for myself, uh, but now I know that that is very clearly not true. And so it took a while to find doctors that are on my side and believe in me and are willing to go that extra mile. But yeah, that's, that's a story we hear too often, um, is that, they can't see it on the test. And so therefore, um, the conclusions be, end up kind of putting it back on the individual. Of course, the patient is going to interpret that as, well, you think I'm crazy or you think I'm making this up to get attention or, you know, you kind of fill in what you think that they're thinking, even if they're saying something more benign. But um, unfortunately, we hear that a lot with chronic illness. So I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, but I know that a lot of our listeners relate to that for sure. This is going to be a, a big question, which we could spend probably the entire podcast on, but we won't. So try to just hit the highlights here. But what are what are the things you most wish people understood about specifically being an athlete with chronic illness? I think generally that it's kind of always an internal battle of um, prioritizing your health and that diagnosis while also pushing to be at a competitive level, especially at the collegiate level where all of us have experience at. Also, I think something that was hard for me, I mean, I ultimately ended up medically retiring, but that it's okay, even at a collegiate level, to require accommodations athletically with your chronic illness or with a disability. So that was something that was hard to learn and hard to fight for. But I think that people can compete at like a high level with chronic illness but the school also has to be willing to meet you with those accommodations to be successful. Going off of what Bella said, I would say um, number one for me that it's an in it's an invisible disease. So uh, for gymnastics, same thing. Uh, if you saw me competed, it looked like everything was perfect, but you didn't know deep down, like I couldn't grab onto the bar because my hands were so swollen and I was like praying I wasn't going to fly off during my routine. Um, number two, just the pain associated with it. My pain tolerance is extremely high and especially with chronic illness, like there's no bruising anywhere or signs of a broken bone, damaged tissue, anything. Um, it's more internal and like your body is, my body personally was not able to recover. Um, and then same thing, just going back to that, that only I know how I feel, kind of what Bella was saying um, and trusting myself, trusting the people around me and making sure I have a good group of people around me that understand the care that I need and maybe some modifications that I need to make um in my collegiate career or just in you know regular life to be the best person healthiest person I could be mm -hmm. yeah I echo all of those thoughts I think the one thing I'll add is just the unpredictable nature um even this past week um I went to a retreat and I was faced with a lot of independent variables that 
I didn't have to deal with when I was at home in a quote unquote controlled environment. I was, I went to Colorado. I was in the altitude. That's a stressor on your body. I was eating food that I didn't normally eat. Um, and so all of these things, I was feeling so good going into the retreat. And then I was met with a lot of pain and discomfort while I was there. Um, and there'd be, I was really taking it hour by hour. Um, there'd be one hour when I would be fine. And then uh, I remember, I think it was Monday or Tuesday afternoon, uh, we were just finishing up with our rest and it was time to go for the next session. And I tried to stand up and I couldn't walk. So I needed to make it to the elevator um, to get downstairs to then get to the next building uh, to go to our session. And I had to call one of the leaders. I said, can can you help me get to the elevator? Um, and then just you know, you know what's going on, uh, not fully, not to the full, fullest extent, but it's so hard for you to know how um, others can help. Uh, you don't really know what helps in that moment and you don't know what to tell them uh, that will help in that moment. Uh, in another instance, my body was spasming and the police, like a police came over and he goes, I'm going to call the paramedics. I said, please don't call the paramedics. I said, I know that's hard for you to hear because you want to help, um, but there's nothing that they can do in this moment. Um, so thank you for um, coming over. Thank you for your consideration and your care, but um, I I don't want you to call the paramedics. That'll only add more stress. So, Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so continuing off of this, I think I'd love to explore some of those various aspects like the physical, the mental, and the social components of dealing with chronic illness as an athlete. So let's let's start off with the physical. For each person presenting with chronic illness symptoms, I'm curious if you have some tips that you have learned along the way uh, to help best navigate the physical challenges that you deal with. You know, like you said, Campbell, about like, it's not predictable. So how can you, like, what kinds of things can you put in place to be responsive to your physical, you know, challenges from a day to day, from a week to week? And um, what kinds of advice would you guys give to maybe someone starting off with chronic illness? And this is maybe um, something that's new for them to deal with. Um, For navigating the physical symptoms, it definitely took me a long time. And I'm still learning like every day what I can handle just because like, we mentioned before, it could be really different every day, especially depending on your type of chronic illness. But generally, I'd say that the best way that I learned how to navigate was actually like connecting with other people with similar diagnosis, like online, just because they have like much broader perspective and understand what you're going through. So that was kind of a good jumping off point, especially if you're newly diagnosed honestly, Google it, <laughs> find it like a blog, something like that. And even if all the things that people are saying don't work for you, something will usually stick and it can at least give you an idea. Like I know what Campbell mentioned with dysautonomia, that's one of my comorbidities as well. So like starting off with that, like just learning, oh, salt intake helps me and I need this amount of salt intake for myself. So it's like a very personal thing. And I think just checking and cross-checking with people with the same diagnosis is the most beneficial thing, especially if you're newly diagnosed. I would say going off of that, um, more like physical things. Uh, so number one, it was the, these all kind of connect, but number one was like to make sure I had time to myself. 
Um, and that kind of bleeds into everything else I'll talk about. So for me, if I don't keep a healthy diet, like if I'm eating a lot of sugar and whatnot, um, my, bo- my body will feel it, my joints will feel it, and I'll struggle just being able to like move my hands and whatnot. Um, so focusing on that, and obviously, um, I've struggled with eating in the past, um, eating disorder, like behaviors and whatnot. So obviously I eat in moderation, but I've noticed whenever I feel myself in the best way, then I feel the best. Um, so that's something I do. And then I also put an emphasis on my sleep. So if I don't get enough sleep, same thing, I won't feel well. Um, and then that kind of correlates with recovery as well. And that was more focused in gymnastics whenever I would use the Normatec, the compression boots, ice tub, whatever, but just making sure I'm taking care of myself in all realms of, you know, like the physical, um, just my body and everything. Yeah. I'll preface with, as Bella was saying, I'm still learning every day and what works one day may not work another day, Mm. but I think the biggest thing is being very honest with yourself about what your limits are. Also not comparing what you can do right now in this moment to what you could do before. Um, If your chronic illness, you know, started when you were 15, you can't compare what you can do now to uh, when you were 13 years old or 10 years old um, because that's just negative and draining energy. Rest is pivotal and you also have to communicate um, to the others that have become your support system and your advocates. Sometimes when you're in so much pain, um, you can't communicate. But if you have a person that's in close proximity, I know for me, that's been my mom. She's been my absolute rock star, my hero um, in this. And she's done so much research for me um, and like reading blogs. Because for me, I get into a spiral when I look things up. So I've had to set that boundary for myself. You know, when I'm in a strong and and confident mental space, sometimes I can do that. But just being honest with your limits and with others, I think that's the best thing, um, physical and just kind of adapting. Um, Because as I was saying before, it can be so unpredictable. Um, In the morning, you can really struggle and the afternoon uh, can be better or vice versa. So, yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a good point about the support network and, you know, everyone's support network looks different and certainly you know, nobody, nobody wants to feel weak, let alone an athlete. And so depending on other people, or like Zoe, what you said earlier, asking for certain, you know, accommodations that you know that you need, I mean, it takes a certain level of courage and confidence. I mean, it doesn't, I'm sure it doesn't feel good at the beginning. But what I would love to hear more about from you guys is how you view advocacy for yourself. Like, how do you advocate for yourself? Because if you can flip the script and it's not about being needy, quote unquote, or being a pain or whatever it is that your internal dialogue tells you or feels in that moment, but instead turning that and just like, no, I'm actually, I'm advocating for myself because I'm the only one in my body. It's not fair to them. They don't know what's happening in my body if I don't articulate it. So what does advocacy for yourself look like for you in various contexts? And um, what would you, how would you kind of recommend you know, others to be able to advocate for themselves. I think there's definitely a lot of layers to this one because like professional advocacy and then personal medical advocacy, I think are very like forms of advocacy, but very different, just different power dynamics almost. So for medically, I'd say that that one is still hard and it's probably hard for most people with chronic illness, especially if you're not diagnosed, even me having a diagnosis. So a lot of the 
stuff that'll pop up will be like undiagnosable or like they don't really know exactly what's going on. So I think learning that you will honestly have some hard negative experiences when you go into the medical setting and just recognizing and almost having a something prepared to like zen you out before you go in. Like I have to deep breathe before I'm in any medical setting just from all the negative experiences. But that's a great way that I've learned to be a strong advocate for myself is I prepare myself before I go in and come in hyper prepared, have a list of everything, all of that stuff. So that's something that I definitely recommend, especially while trying to pursue diagnosis. Um, on school and professional level, it took me a while to be like, okay, I need accommodations. It's okay to go in and ask and um, use disability services. That's something that definitely took a while to recognize, especially becoming chronically ill and disabled like later like when when I was like around 20 so um learning that that's okay to do and that's actually the strongest the strongest way to advocate for yourself because that is so highly helpful rather than not having any accommodations at all so yeah no I think those points are great um some of the things you just mentioned actually I have a appointment at my rheumatologist next week I'm like gonna use because same thing sometimes I just get so mad because I'm like I have these questions and people are like no you have to do this I'm like I don't want to do that but um, yeah, there's just obviously a process, um, with everything, but I took this question more in the realm of like my gymnastics career, just because, um, whenever I decided to medically retire, my big thing was communication. So I talked to my head coach, like often every practice, she would ask me how I was feeling. And I thank God for her because same thing, she was so helpful with me during that process and just kind of walked me through it and gave me the space I needed, which most people aren't blessed to have, but I had that space to be able to take the time to process and everything. So I would just say to reach out to the people in your community, if that's your coach, if that's your boss, if that's your parents, whoever it is, but just make sure you have a solid group of people. And that kind of goes into um, friend, different friendships, like relationships I have. Um, I mentioned my autoimmune disease within the first one, two, like three times of hanging out. And I can tell if people care about it and will care about me in the correct way because obviously I'm not going to be able to do the same things as other people so um just advocating for myself and the people that I have around me to make sure that it's always a positive experience and I know um it's more difficult than other people because I can't do um, the same things as everyone else but it does help me um to be able to make sure the people I have in my life are really here and supportive of me right which doesn't necessarily need to be every single person that knows you have chronic illness it's like you just kind of make that the go-to support network really small so that you don't have to keep explaining yourself. Am I, am I right in that? Exactly. No, you're right. Yep. Yeah. I don't have too much to add here, but I think going off of what Bella was saying with the accommodations, anyone who is struggling with chronic illness, um, don't feel guilty if you have those accommodations, but don't need to use them. Um, it is so, so important to have those in place so that when you are uh, in a flare that you are able to use those and that is understood um, with your prof uh, professors or your boss or anyone in your network in different areas of your life um, that you're able to kind of have those in place so you don't have to explain yourself every time, um, but having them and not using them, um, don't feel guilty or embarrassed about that at all. I love that. That's really helpful. Thank you guys for sharing all that. Let's talk about where the physical meets the mental. There's this tension as an athlete competing with chronic illness between pushing your limits physically, you know, like every athlete wants to do. I mean, honestly, nothing feels better than pushing your limits and then discovering you can get further than you thought. Um, however, with chronic illness, that's not always 
that clearly is not always the best thing to do, right? Because if you push too hard, you end up paying for it later. Um, so I'm curious, kind of thinking about this almost like it's almost like grit versus realism. It's like, yes, you can be gritty, but that means you also need to be realistic about what is good for you. So any insights on how to manage that tension as an athlete who's still competing with chronic illness, um, just to kind of uh, manage, their, like you said earlier, like the expectations of yourself and realistic expectations. Um, I think the most important thing, which is like kind of brutal, but you come to realize it, is that you have to be like, 100% honest and self-reflective within yourself on what you can handle that specific day at that specific time. Like sometimes you might be worse off in the evenings than in the mornings. Like it's just very unpredictable. So I think just recognizing like how can I best prepare before I'm here to push myself to my max and recognizing that my max might be completely different than the person next to me, which I know is super hard to comprehend, especially when you have that competitive athlete mentality but even with kids that I coach that don't have chronic illness I try and use this perspective more and be like you need to recognize in yourself if you had a really bad day or if you've been sick all week to not push yourself to an extent that is harmful to your body so I think it's really good advice actually for any athlete competing at any level to just always have a good self-reflection before you start practice a game and be like what can I handle today that will be safe for me and make me as successful as possible in the future. Smart. I like that. Who else? That was a great response. Um, I, so my perspective, same thing. It's going to go back to gymnastics because that was, this was just last year for me. Um, and obviously I had a lot of expectations for myself and wanted to be in a lineup every week. And for practice, if you're not on, then you're going to be out of the lineup and you're not going to be traveling or competing. Um, but same thing for me, it was like, okay, what comes first, my health or competing and my health, I need my health for my whole life. Um, competing is something that is fleeting and I'm going to find something else that I'm passionate about. Um, and I still have my grounded purpose that I can move through life with, but yeah, kind of going off of, again, what Bella said, um, make sure your health comes first and be super, super honest with yourself. I struggle with that because I always wanted to push through, but there were times when I would push through and then I would be pushed back a month or two because I had a flare up that took me out for a week or I got sick for like two weeks. So Yeah. This is such a slippery slope because I think as athletes and in the realm of sport, um, there's this question of A, what is success? And B, what defines a great athlete from a good athlete? And especially in rowing and from a coaching lens, I there I vividly remember this day where all of the athletes just kind of had this breakthrough. Um, we were doing 500 meter pieces. Um, and if there are any rowers out there, they know those are kind of brutal, but we were doing these 500 meter pieces and I was sitting right next to this girl and she's like, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see. And in rowing, like you push yourself to the, like you, here's your threshold mm -hmm. and you just keep pushing. And that's required to know what's possible from yourself. But when you have chronic illness, that is a very fine line because you want to give it your all. And for a sport like rowing or gymnastics or lacrosse, like these are all team sports. There's an individual element. You have to be very self-aware. But in rowing, when you are in the same boat with seven, eight other people, if you count the coxswain, you cannot let down or else there's going to be a notice noticeable impact in the boat. Um but when you have a chronic illness, I mean, all athletes are aware of what their bodies feel like. 
Um, but there's an extra level of awareness that's required um, because it's not just, oh, I'm going to be sore um, and I'll do some Normatec compression boots. I'll go um, in the hot tub. I'll do an ice bath. Um, there's a little more that goes into it after and um, the recovery that might take one or two days, uh, maybe as Zoe was mentioning, uh, a month or two, which is a slippery slope to navigate because you want it so bad, but the consequence is so heavy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that with a sport like rowing where it's like, you're on the water. Like if you get in that moment where you feel like you're pushing yourself too hard, it's kind of like, well, I can imagine that the mental pressure is so significant because you know, it's not just you. And maybe that's the way it is for other sports as well. But I just, I think, I think that's just a hard thing. And that certainly messes with, with your mind, right? It's like, you are trying to to make your choices for yourself and um, push yourself, you're also trying not to let down the team and your coaches. And when your body is as unpredictable as chronic illness can be, sometimes I imagine it gets really frustrating to feel like, well, if I don't even know my body like very well, because it just keeps twisting and turning on me, like, how am I supposed to know how to make these decisions? So um, I think confusion is probably a part of, of dealing with chronic illness. It is a very confusing medical situation. Um, and I think that that is its own super frustrating thing for type A personalities. And a lot of athletes are, it's like, you know, we're going to measure things out. We're going to, we're going to create a plan. We're going to do this. We're going to fix it in this way. And that's just not always possible. So how do you deal with like that, the mental blocks, the mental, um, reels that go through your head of the unhealthy thinking, um, you know, beating yourself up or feeling like, um, maybe I am weak or maybe I am, you know, making this up or I don't know, just like comparing, uh, Zoe, you mentioned comparisons earlier. What kind of tips and thoughts do you have on, on minding the mental game associated with dealing with chronic illness as an athlete? Um, I'd say like the internal struggles, you just mentioned like a lot of them, like feeling confused all the time. I would say that would be like my primary one that I had, especially when I was going through like the diagnosis process that took like six or seven doctors telling me like, there's nothing wrong. And then you finally like hit that one guy who's like, oh yeah, this is it. And we can help you. So like, just that feeling of like self-doubt almost throughout that whole process. And then even once I did get that figured out, I still have like self-doubt where I'm like, wait a second, was that really right? Even though I had a whole surgery, like all of this just internalized stuff of like, I'll get like I'll go back to like these doctors who are like, there's nothing wrong, all this stuff. And I'll be like, wait, what if there is nothing wrong? And I'll kind of just gaslight myself into like not trusting my own body. So to get myself out of that, I have to like really center myself and kind of almost like do meditation (laughs) and just like feel kind of feel out my body, like recognize everything that I've gone through and almost like make a list of the things that I've overcome and recognize where exactly I'm at now. And that's how I get over like doubting what I've been through. So I have to like physically write it down to understand everything that's like going on when I feel that sense of um, self-doubt in like what I've had to deal with. Thank you for that. That's, yeah, I think that's really intense. Um, but yeah, you, it's like we have to learn how to manage our minds and to like, to be able to set our minds straight when when we even doubt ourselves. So thank you for sharing that. What else would you add, Zoe? Um, so we kind of talked about this before, but something I would struggle with constantly was comparing myself to the person that I was like three, four years ago, um, or even before college where I could train like 35 hours a week and be completely fine. Um, do all these extracurricular activities and be fine. But now 
um, whenever I was training, I was not able to do really anything. And still it took me a month or two after I medically retired to feel okay ish again. Um, it took me way, like way longer to feel good. Um, and so that was one of the main things. And also just comparing with people around me because same thing, we're fighting for the same spot in gymnastics. And I would say like, Hey, like they can do this, but I can't, um, because of my illness. Um, and that was something I constantly struggled with. Um, and then, then another internal struggle was just the pain I was facing. And I thought I was fake because I was often told, um, that the pain wasn't real, whether this was an injury in my body or something, or cause I've like, I've trained on a tear or a torn labrum in my shoulder for like months. I, same thing with like my foot that I broke last year. Um, just because same thing I was told the pain didn't matter. Um, and that's just a systemic issue, honestly, throughout the sport, but those are just internal battles that same thing um, what Bella was saying that I have to find my higher purpose and set my eyes uh, above for me. My faith is something big. So I just leaned on that pretty much through the whole process and it, it helped me greatly. Nice. Campbell, what about you? Yeah. As Bella and Zoe were talking, my I could feel my heart just like start to beat because there's so much emotion that goes into this season and the journey and all the circumstances that we faced um, I think the biggest internal struggle for me has been, I don't feel like myself, like the Campbell that people know isn't the Campbell that I feel like I am now. Um, all of the strengths that I was given, um, I mean, at, at Virginia, like, as I mentioned, I was only there for six weeks. I couldn't even go to class. So not only was I not, couldn't row, but I couldn't attend class. And in high school, I was surrounded by a pretty high achieving group and I didn't feel like I had any dialogue to add to the conversations. I didn't have any good updates and I just, I so badly wanted to deliver good news and I just didn't have it. I don't like complaining. I don't like, I'm usually a positive and optimistic person. Um, but in that moment, I didn't see any light and I was just trying to hang on, um, but I think the most helpful thing for me is I remember one day I was crying at home and largely because I knew there was no one that fully understood. Um, but the one person um, or kind of the one, yeah, the one person who did understand was God and that he wasn't going to give me anything that I couldn't handle. And looking back now where it's been, you know, over two years, the new the newfound perspective and outlook I've gained on life and just the amount of gratitude I have before I was so analytical about, okay, am I doing, you know, 12 K 15 K 20 K rowing today? Now I'm just grateful to get up and walk and climb stairs. And, you know, I haven't been able to go on a hike yet, but the day that I'm going, like I'm able to go up on a hike and just see what God created and everything that surrounds us. I just feel like now I have such a beautiful outlook that I'm able to apply. And, you know, I question the timing of why it happened. You know, I didn't even get an opportunity to demonstrate not only to others, but to myself, what I was capable of at the collegiate level. But I just think of the reflection time that I've had and even the one or two years. Um, and I'm going to be able to apply that for the rest of my life. I don't, I don't know how many more years I'm going to have. And I don't know how many more years I'm going to have where I can move, even if it's not to the fullest extent. Um, I think so often I prayed that I would feel free in my body. Um, 
but just knowing that I'm worthy no matter if I can move or not was so valuable. Yeah, that is, I feel like the the last things you guys all just discussed were really thought provoking and and eye-opening really. Um, There's a lot there. So Campbell, you and I have talked before um, and I wanted to ask you to start on this question and then anyone else can chime in, but I'm specifically wondering if you have any tips for um, how do you manage those thoughts? What are some strategies specifically that you can use? Maybe you learned them from somebody else. Maybe you learned them in therapy, but like, how do you reset your own inner inner dialogue with whatever it is that you've dealt with or are dealing with? Yeah. So I'm a big value girl. I love my affirmations. Um, but as I was talking about, I don't feel like me, but I'm still me. Like I'm still Campbell. Um, and I, I think, you know, Silent USA, we all talk about we're more than an athlete, um, which is so, so important. Um, I'm kind, I'm caring, I'm loving, I'm optimistic, I'm hardworking. I, you can even write I'm still an athlete on there because even though I'm not actively competing, it's a part of who I am. I just think about those who are in a place where they feel like no strategy, no technique is going to be able to take their pain away. And I've been there. I don't want to speak for Bella and Zoe, but I can predict that they've been there. Um, you know, I, every morning I wake up my, my mom, I, we created this little planter and, um, it says, you got this on it. And for the past two years, two plus years, I wake up every morning and I walk into my bathroom and it says, you got this. And then I follow that with some of those affirmations and it just grounds me. And as soon as those lies start to trickle in, um, they're inevitable. Um, you just have to take, take some deep breaths. And if there are tears that need to flow, I think I was trying to hold up a facade for so long and I'm at a point where I don't have that strength to hold up the facade anymore. Um, and it's okay to cry, um, whether it's in the grocery store or movie theater, like it's okay to cry. Um, and if people, if there's judgment there, um, that's their problem. Um, but you just have to know, um, what you need in that moment. Um, and my other biggest thing is when you feel no sense of hope or light, don't isolate yourself. You know, even if it's just you have no strength to communicate what you're feeling or even write what you're feeling or even think what you're feeling, even if you're feeling nothing, don't isolate yourself. Yeah. That's really, really important, Campbell. And it's the hardest thing to push against. And, you know, I don't have chronic illness, but I've dealt with depression and it can be so immobilizing. It just feels like your whole body can like shut down and you can't move your body. And so therefore you couldn't move closer towards somebody, but you know, it's like, there are ways to fight against isolation. Even if you can't go be in a social setting, maybe it just means, um, texting a friend, you know, and moving just, just your thumb, (laughs) you know, and, um, just saying, you know, I need a hug from your mom or something, or I just need to not be alone to your roommate. And maybe they can come in and camp out at your bed or whatever it is. But that is really, really important. And one of the things that we talk about inside the USA a lot is suicide awareness and suicide prevention. It would stand to reason that people dealing with chronic illness do struggle with suicidal ideation as well. So these strategies are are helpful on the daily, but they're also helpfully, helpful um, potentially for just saving your own life down the road of, you know, just like making sure you do the things to protect yourself and not isolating is certainly one of those really, really important things. Um, who else wants to 
add some more strategies or thoughts on how, um, you know, specifically to, to manage those thoughts? Uh, something for me, um, kind of what Campbell was saying, I always, I needed to get the thoughts out, um, especially whenever I was very, the process just happened. So um, I would always call my friends, FaceTime them, or even just journal, or even just like talk out loud. It sounds weird, but um, just saying things instead of keeping keeping them inside your head was very helpful for me. Um, I would go to church, I would pray, same thing. It would help me get the thoughts out and help me situate the thoughts and be able to see things a little bit straighter. Um and then on the last part of the question that you just asked, um, something for me, kind of again, what Kimberly was saying was just to have a, always, just to always know that there's light at the end of the tunnel, even when there feels like there's nothing, even when um, there's been times where I didn't want to wake up in the morning or times when I wanted to just go sleep. Um, and same thing, it just felt like my whole life was crashing, my whole world was like crashing in. Um, but there's still, there's so many people that love you and you bring something you need to this world and your impact is something so beautiful. Um, so I would just say to, to focus on that and same thing, just to reach out to someone Thanks for that. and to be kind with yourself. Also okay. be kind to yourself. Anything more to add, Bella? Um, off the light at the end of the tunnel thing. Um, that's something that I probably like see resetting my inner dialogue is like, even though I didn't get to similar to Campbell, I only lasted like, I was there like a semester and then I got too sick and I had to go home. So I never competed like fully competitively. Um, but being like back home and like flipping, even though I didn't end up doing what I planned to do those four years, like opened up a lot more different opportunities. So not the same opportunities that I was expecting to have, like play college, collegiate level, do that stuff. But instead it opened up a lot more opportunities that I would have never expected. So just like recognizing the positive things that even though it was like a really hard situation and it wasn't ideal, there are really positive things that came out of me not ending up staying up there. Love it. That's a really um, great add on. Thank you for that. All right. So let's talk about the social side um, of being an athlete dealing with chronic illness. We talked, we alluded to this just recently here with the isolation piece, but truth be told, it can be very isolating. Even if you're trying hard to fight against that, it can impact your relationships because you don't have, right. The sometimes you just don't have the energy you used to have to, to build into relationships and relationships do take work. So maybe your social, your social circle gets smaller. Um, maybe you can't go out um, after practice. You can't go out like other people are because you just have physically spent yourself and you, you spent all the, in fact, I, I, I forget why the, my friend who deals with chronic illness um, had this, had this analogy, but the doctor, I think, explained to her that it's like you have a certain number of spoons. I don't know why they use spoons. I don't know if anyone else is common or not, but you have a certain amount of spoons that you can use in one day. And it's like if you've used your your five spoons and that's all you have that day, it's like you just got to go rest. Um, like I said, I have no idea what the deal with the spoons. I might be getting that totally wrong, but it kind of helped her to explain like to herself even because she was a former athlete as well. Like I've used up all my spoons for the day and I just need to acknowledge that. Um, so certainly... Um, you know, it can have an impact on the social part of things. But did you guys have that experience with like coping with some of the loss on a social side of things? And how did that maybe impact your own, you know, thinking about friendships and relationships, teammates? Yeah. First of all, you're right on the spoon theory. That's very popular. Yeah. They use hey. that a lot with like chronic illness, especially dysautonomia and stuff. So yeah, you're right on that. Okay. Um, I just <laughs> remembered that. Not yeah. <laughs> 
So it is the spoons. And like you were talking about, you have like a certain number of spoons in the day. And once you're out of spoons, like you're basically done. Like you crash, un- your body is unusable. Like you cannot physically do anything. And that's a concept, especially a lot of college kids have difficulty grasping. Because most college kids who don't have chronic illness can go like all night, like have energy for days after practice. They still have energy. And definitely, yeah, what you were talking about, I'd just be so tired. Like physically, I could barely make it through practice. I did not have the energy to like do any social socializing, social stuff after that. But um, positive aspects on like socializing. And I kind of had to like figure out how to find people that could meet my energy level. So when I was up there, actually, I started a disability group. So I met a lot of other people with chronic illness and disabilities. And it was just like something like comforting. You get to know people who like have very similar struggles. Having it be like broad disability actually brings a lot more other perspectives. And then I did that here too when I came back and I go to like a local college. So making like almost like starting your own like group making somewhere for people to come that have similar backgrounds and perspectives I think that was like the most beneficial thing I did for myself socially because those are people that recognize my needs and are willing to like meet more than the average college kid or young adult nice that's a good tip I would say same I kind of touched on this earlier just with like friendships um in a typical college student as Bella said they're out doing everything every weekend every day no matter how tired anyone is but same thing I'm like I could maybe last 30 minutes and then I would fall asleep or (laughs) I wouldn't be able to walk um because my like feet were so swollen but um yeah that was something that was it was very difficult because I wanted to be sometimes at places with some of those friends but same thing it made me see who really cares about me and find the circle that I'm able to give the energy that they're giving to me. Um, But yeah, I'd say that she pretty much covered everything um, that I was going to say. So that was awesome. Yeah. Big snaps, Bella. That was uh, an awesome way to start us off Um, from a social perspective. um, A technique that I've learned is at least for me and my experience with dysautonomia, your autonomic nervous system, it basically goes into fight or flight. So all of the processes central for survival continue to work um, to keep your body alive, but everything else kind of shuts down. And so my ability to think clearly, um, if you know, if there were any people that are listening that had COVID and experienced brain fog after, like your mind is just clouded. Um, so what I do from a social perspective is my therapist said, write down people in your circle, in your support circle. And so write those people down and write their phone numbers and laminate the paper and carry that with you everywhere so that if you're in this quote unquote crisis or flare where your brain cannot think, you don't have the work is already done for you. You already have the names of the people and you already have the numbers. All you have to do is you have to take your phone and dial the numbers. And if for some reason you can't dial the numbers, then there's someone around you that knows how to use a phone and dial the numbers. So the work is already done for you. So that's been really helpful for me. Um, to stop you there. That was amazing. I feel like that is clutch. Yeah. Wow. It's because your your brain just cannot, it's it's crazy. Like your brain cannot think. So that's been huge for me. Um I think another piece I'll share is I feel like another one of my strengths is I'm such a good listener. Um and I don't always have to like I feel like a lot of my friends have come to me um when they're dealing with something. And so it's been frustrating when I feel kind of locked in my body. Um, 
where I feel like I can't be there for others. Um, but someone recently just shared, she goes, Campbell, like, even if you can't move to someone, you still have such good energy about you that people will come to you. Like there's a comfort about you that people will come to you even when you can't physically be there for them. Um, so that was really key. And I've always told my friends, um, cause I've, I have a caring heart. I said, even when I'm not, can't be there, um, you know, please call me on the phone or FaceTime me in. I'd love to be there in spirit. Um, but sometimes I just can't physically make it. I love that. It's like making adjustments and accommodations on a social, on your, your social life, just like you would for, you know, your sport doing the same type of thing. And just, um, Zoe, you talked a lot about communication and how important that is earlier in the podcast and just like being able to, um, almost even have an unspoken code system or something with your, your closest friends. Like I've heard of color systems, like where people will say it's like, it's a, it's a, a yellow day. And that just means like, it's kind of so, so, or it's a green day. It's a, it's like, I'm on go, you know, or it's a red day. Like everything, I feel like I'm moving through cement, you know, and if you can just even create some kind of code system where you don't have to explain it all over again in words, but you can just explain it in like a simple color. And then they get the idea. I think that can be also helpful because when you're in that moment of brain fog or, um, body sludge or whatever you want to call it. Like, um, there's, there's the, the, the more you can communicate with less, um, effort, certainly the better. So, um, I like that idea of, of making some accommodations for your social network, uh, relationships as well. Um, let's talk about medical retirement. (laughs) I know it's like one of those things, like you all worked so hard to avoid knowing that, um, you were dealing with something really significant, but I'm sure um, in your minds, at least in the beginning, you thought, well, I can still continue or uh, I'm going to give it my best effort to continue to do and make my goals um, and to keep putting towards what I always said I wanted to do. For any listeners who might be going through that right now, considering medical retirement, or maybe they just recently medically retired, I mean, how did you come to that decision for you? And um, how did you know it was time? How did you know it was the best for you personally and any thoughts on kind of having confidence in that decision-making process? So me personally, um, athletes can compete with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They can compete with dysautonomia. It was like my third thing that really like threw me off. Like I physically, the NCAA would not clear me. So it wasn't really a decision that I could make. So I ended up getting fused from my skull to the bottom so I can't turn my head directionally which is just generally like dangerous in sports and I also neurologically like never fully recovered so they would not like actually clear me to play so I actually didn't have like the personal challenge of having to fully make the decision myself so Mm -hmm. honestly I'm like thankful that the doctors made the decision for me because it's a very very hard decision to weigh and like have to make yourself and I'll let the other two kind of touch base on that. Yeah, so for me, I was going into my senior year um, competing on the gymnastics team, and I was pretty successful the first three. Uh, my third year got cut short because I uh, broke my foot and I needed surgery immediately. Um, but that summer and honestly that season, I was getting a flare-up once a month, and I was I had to get on a steroid um, just because with all the travel and everything, I was exhausted. Um, came to the middle of the summer, and uh, my pain was just very bad. And I had thought about medically retiring, but I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I still have another year. I want to compete. Um, and then it came to August and I called my coach. I made a decision. She actually wasn't here, but I was like, hey, I think I want to do this. And she was like, give me one more month. 
um, we'll modify everything. And I just want you to have no regret. Um, so that was the month where I modified conditioning, um, just some different things in practice. I did cryo, I did Normatec, I slept, I, 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 really, I, I did not do anything um, that month, but same thing. I would just wake up and not be able to walk. And the what made me come to the decision was I thought about, okay, in like 10, 20 years, um, God willing, if I'm married and I have children at this rate, I'm not going to be able to run with them. I'm not going to be able to pass a ball or like play with them outside, um, bend down, grab them, pick them up. Uh, just with the state that my hands and my body was in. So that kind of helped me make the decision. Um, and obviously I had to forego my senior year. I thought about taking a fifth year, but obviously that was not going to be able to happen um, just for my health sake and just for my obviously long-term health and to be able to be there for everyone I care about and everyone I love in my life. Um, and there was something else I was going to say. Oh, obviously then I went into coaching um, which was great. It was a very helpful transition. And I feel like I kind of went through the process again, once uh, the season was done, and I was done with coaching, because then I completely cut gymnastics and everything. And until recently, it took me like a month. And I was just in a funk. Because obviously, I was used to getting up, oh, I'm going to go to practice. Oh, I work with the gymnastics team. Oh, I'm a da da da. da. Um, but same thing. It's like, who am I? What's my real identity? And recently, I found myself. So again, this kind of is more on the like faith side of things for me personally. Um, and like a big part of who I am, but I found myself becoming less of who I am and more of who God wants me to be. Um, so that process has been very difficult, but also one that um, it's just very, it's, it's fun to be on, even though it's, it's very difficult, but the end goal is obviously just the journey and everything and finding joy and happiness. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. I know it's really hard for you, Campbell, because of like, you just got so close you know, to being able to compete and then to, to have that where you couldn't even, you had to leave so quickly in the fall um, of that freshman year of yours. So um, tell us about how your body told you it was time. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that I think is unique to my story and that made it even more challenging for me was I had actually committed to go to another school and April of my senior year, I had an opportunity to visit that place and I committed during COVID. And so I didn't have an opportunity to go on any official visits. And when I had an opportunity to go there, I just knew something didn't feel right. And I knew it wasn't the right place for me. So I went through um, an LI release request and I had to wait four weeks for it to get approved. And then the NCAA championships um, are at the end of May. And so I had to wait for them to happen because teams were in the grind. They were getting ready for the championships. And so June 1st, Following my senior year, I didn't know where I was going to go to school. And at that point, like there was a two week period of time where I didn't feel very good, but then I had kind of gotten better. Um, and at that point, I had reached out to a bunch of different schools. I talked to the University of Virginia coach on a Tuesday. I talked to the head coach on a Wednesday. And then they were like, we want to go. We want you to come to Charlottesville. So I visited the campus um, I loved it. I knew that was the place where I was meant to be. I came home. Um, I committed on that next Tuesday and I turned my application in on Friday. And so I committed to university of Virginia in a two week period of time following graduation. Mm. And so I felt like they were giving me a second opportunity. And when I went to high performance camp and started having more severe pain in my legs and was experiencing a lot of tiredness, um, and my body shut down after camp. Um, 
But I think the day that I knew something was really, really bad was the very first day of practice at University of Virginia. I walked into the erg room and the first practice of the year, it was a 90 minute circuit, 30 minutes on the ergometer, 30 minute bike, 30 minute run. And about that time, my threshold was around 20 minutes. So I got on the ergometer and I rode the 20 minutes and the lights kind of turned off. My muscles shut down. I moved to the bike. The coaches were somewhat aware of what was happening. Coach comes over and he goes, take some deep breaths. Just keep moving your legs. He turned the dial down and I made it through that 30 minutes. I don't know how. Um, and then I went outside and the rest of my group left for the run. And I was just standing there. My body was spasming. Everything was shaking. I couldn't really see. I didn't know where I was. And I just remember looking directly at the coach and I said, I don't know what is happening, but something is seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is the moment that I knew that it was nothing that I could do to push through. It wasn't just some weird, you know, I'd had some tendonitis before I had, you know, migraines before that kind of went away. It, it, this felt more permanent. And the second, the, the really what sealed the deal was there was a day where I slept for 17 hours straight. My roommate just kept coming in and she goes, Campbell, you were just still asleep. And she had to wake me up because she was worried that I like wasn't alive. Um, and the coach sent me a message and, and she goes, we missed you at practice today. Are you okay? And I was just looking for the text and I just spilled everything out. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I said, at this time, I feel like I need to try something different, but I don't entirely know what that is. I apologize. I did not communicate sooner. And hopefully I will have more clarity on how to work through the academic side of things. I can't control how I feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to push through all that I need to when I continually feel like I'm going to break down. So those are the words that I said, and I know, you know, thinking back how hard that was to share, um, but those were two moments where I knew that yeah. I yeah. Couldn't, couldn't push through. You just knew. It was like, no, this isn't normal. This isn't how it should feel to be, you know, 18 years old. And um, yeah, so, well, I'm sorry that that happened for each of you. I know that um, from talking to you all earlier that each of you stayed involved with your sport through uh, coaching. Um, so you have that in common. So now there's definitely pros and cons to staying involved in your sport, particularly if you stayed involved with your team, where it's like your memories of, you know, these are your fellow teammates as well as competitors. And that is its own layer. I think, Zoe, I think you might be the only one that stayed on with your team itself. You guys, and Campbell and Bell, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, but nonetheless, you each have dealt, have done coaching. And I'd love for you to just share, we're almost done with our podcast here, but this is the last question before the final word, um, it's to share kind of some of the pros and cons of staying involved with a sport. Um, and was it a, a good thing for you overall and looking back and uh, anything that you would do differently? Yeah, so I lacrosse is not very popular in the Midwest, like in our area. So I ended up kind of starting a girls program and I direct a girls program for first through 12th grade, like in South Bend. And we had like our first season this year. So it was like crazy. I went from like, I coached for a year for my high school team. I came back the, that semester and then I went straight into like being in charge of a whole program, which blew my mind and then made me busier than I was as a collegiate athlete, which was insane. Oh, I did not <laughs> expect that. But so like, Definitely the negatives of that were all of a sudden I was busier than I was doing collegiate athletics, which was crazy. And also that my biggest struggle like that I have internally is I want so badly to like play and compete with kids and like 
almost like crush crush them you know like be competitive and like get out there and do stuff and I'm just not physically recovered to a point where I can go out and like competitively play so that part is like that kills me especially when I like want to do like examples and I know what needs to be done but I can't physically show how to do the examples I think that's the hardest part to be a medically retired athlete coaching that can't fully do the examples especially the young person yeah that's rough so kind of even just a reminder of your limitations surrounded by the thing you love in life, maybe the most yeah. from a physical standpoint. Yeah, it's tough. So you're still doing it. So do you, I guess you, to you, it's worth it. Oh yeah, it's definitely, I like, I love it. I'm yeah, <laughs> it's a bit obsessive. I think probably too much now, honestly, but yeah, I love doing it. It's that's just like the hard part. The awards of like feeling competitive still coaching are definitely there like I still get like so hyped up for like game day and stuff so yeah great Zoe what about you I would say um in terms of pros so for me I just I had so much more to give um and I was really tight with some of the girls and I just knew my impact for the year was going to be something very good for the team um and we ended up having a record-breaking season um and I do think I impacted a lot of the girls lives um, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and then kind of going off of that, this kind of ties into why it was worth it, but the experience was none like like no other, um, especially for retiring and just the transition was a lot easier for me um, because I kind of went through a lot of it. And then, like I said before, um, just recently I went through like finally exiting the sport. Um, I'm still going to say kind of involved around the sport and whatnot, but um, just being, still being there, being involved in everything. And obviously as a, uh, Bella stated, like, I couldn't do things. And there were some times I was at competitions coaching when I just wanted to put a leotard on and go compete um, because I didn't get that last meet whenever I, you know, was able to choose since I got injured as well. Um, so, yeah, so that was the most difficult thing for me, um, just being out there and being like, oh, I just want to do it so bad. Um, but I know it was the best thing for me. But same thing. Um, it was kind of the best of both worlds. I could still stay involved while maintaining my health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me. So when I came home from Virginia, one of the first things that I did was get my U.S. rowing coaching certifications. And I think I did that because it was what I knew. It was what I was comfortable doing. Um, and, you you know, kind of that athlete mentality, <laughs> even though I spent so much of the day just sitting or laying down on the couch, I was like, okay, Campbell, you have to do something. You have to do something. And so even if it meant I would lay on the couch the entire day and then, you know, when it came to four o'clock, 3.30, I would um, drive to the lake or even if I couldn't drive, I would have someone drive me um, and be able to coach and just be there for those high school athletes who are learning what it means to love the sport of rowing and growing um, as not only as athletes, but as humans too, just being, you know, I think such close proximity to them in age. Um, I was their coach and they called me coach, but I was also a mentor. I was a role model. I was also a friend. If they were going through recruiting, I could help them um, through that. They also told me some of the things they were struggling with. And so in that moment, and, and even now, um, I feel much more than a coach. Um, now the, the con of that or, um, you know, where I have to be careful is just as I found for so long found my identity in my sport. Um, I think sometimes I fall accustomed to finding my identity in, in coaching. Um, and I 
believe that I have something to contribute just as, as Zoe had shared, but I can't put that pressure on myself to, um, you know, yield a certain performance. Um, so I have to give myself grace in that area. Um, and there are some days where I would show up to the boathouse and have kind of anxiety attacks or panic attacks because I think I would, the weight of being reminded of what I couldn't do kind of added up. Um, but just trying to take a deep breath and pray that what I had to give um, was more liberating than any anxiety that I had um, and that I was there for a reason. Yeah. That's good. And I know that it's, you know, it's a very personal decision to stay involved with the sport or not. And, you know, just because the three of you all chose to do that does not mean that's the right answer for our listeners. Like y'all have to um, really think that through and balance that out of like, I think Campbell, you described it well. It's like, do, does what I can, what I get from this coaching experience outweigh the negatives um, that I am going to have to deal with. There are triggering things about being that close to your sport. And there's certainly a lot of athletes who'd completely walk away because it's just too painful. And that is a completely valid choice as well. It really comes down to personal decision, but thank you guys for sharing your perspectives. And Christine, I'll just add something really quick for someone that feels like stepping away from their sport completely is the right answer for them. I mean, I found value in, in, um, you know, positive energy and being there and present and coaching at the junior level, but, uh, Arizona state where I attend school right now, they have a club program. And at the beginning of the semester, I had um, reached out to the coach. I said, you know, I, here's kind of a little bit of my story. I would love to help. And I went to some of their practices and I just wasn't emotionally ready to do that. For some reason, seeing college kids doing what I was quote unquote meant to do or what I quote unquote thought I was meant to do. Um, it was just too painful in that moment. And, um, I would still love to coach at the collegiate level at some point. Um, I think there's so something so special about women's college athletics. Um, we've seen that we saw that in, in women's basketball this past year with the NCAA tournament and, and all um, women's college athletics. Um, so, but knowing that it, you may, you just have to give yourself time. It's not going to be on your timeline that you're going to heal. And I learned that um, it, if I learned that earlier that I think the process would have been a little bit smoother, but it's not going to be on your timeline that you're going to heal. It's, it's not going to be on my timeline that I'm going to be able to coach collegiately. Um, so I just wanted to add that factor where it really is a personal decision. Um, and even where, if sport is where you feel most comfortable, where you feel like your identity is the most, um, stepping away could be also the best decision that you've ever made. Yes. And it's not, it's not, permanent either. Like you can make a decision and then down the road, make a different decision and try something different. So like you said, that's what you did because you realized it was the level thing made a difference for you. So, all right, final words. Um, we've covered a lot, a lot of material and I think it's really important, but I would love to um, send our listeners out with whatever final word that each of you individually would like to encourage them with. Um, Bella, let's start with you. Um, I would just say that whether you're a athlete competing with chronic illness like still or if you're someone who had to medically retire I would just say that um recognizing your body and its needs is the most important and that should always be the top priority like playing like one more season and then having like worse health issues the rest of your life is just like not worth it you have to really self-reflect and recognize like this is what's best for me kind of on a long-term perspective and it's okay if you have to fully medically retire from sport Thank you. Zoe. 
I would say for me, um, number one, it's okay not to be okay. Um, in college athletics, it's something uh, mental health is often pushed to the side. It's now becoming a forefront, which I'm very thankful for. And I hope we continue to push forward in that direction. Um, but just giving grace to yourself, I feel like that's something that is huge and very hard to do, especially with yourself when you're dealing with chronic illness. Um, number two, we talked about this briefly earlier, but um, if I didn't make that decision, I would not be where I am today. I would not have had the opportunities that I have had. If I was still an athlete competing um, recently, I, there's just, I, I would not be the person I am um, genuinely. And it taught me so much. It made me grow. It made me go through a lot of uncomfortable things and uncomfortable feelings that I feel like often people don't have to go through at this age. So as hard as it was, it's something I'm very thankful for. Um, and then just two more things uh, to be yourself and be authentic. It's not easy. And that could change over time. Kind of what I was talking about earlier. Um, I don't recognize myself as much because I'm trying to become more of the woman that God wants me to be and be made in his image. And as I believe like all of us are. And then lastly, just you are enough, whether you're in sport, out of sport, have a chronic illness or not, um, you yourself as you are, you're enough. Love it. Good word. Campbell, lead us out. Anything more to add? Yeah. I just want to say directly to our listeners. I'm so proud of your fight. I'm proud of your resilience. It's truly no easy feat. Um, do your very best to focus on the things that you can do rather than the things that you cannot. Mm. Reflecting, has this journey been enjoyable? Absolutely not. Um, but it has provided a newfound perspective, outlook, and a level of gratitude that I would have never thought possible. So many of the things that I stress about in high school, I, I learned that they don't really matter. I held myself to a standard of perfection, and it's just not possible reiterating this experience has revealed what really matters and I'm grateful that it happened right now where I'm 20 and hopefully I'll live for um, you know 60 more years and so I have that opportunity to live through a newfound lens and newfound perspective um, to live with an overflowing amount of gratitude uh, which is truly a gift from God. And I am just so grateful for you, Christine, and Sideline USA providing resources for medically retired athletes. I think, as Zoe mentioned, mental health has become more of a forefront in sport. Um, but what happens to those athletes when they retire? Um, you know, for me, when I left University of Virginia, I didn't have access to the sports psychologist. I didn't have access to any of the resources in the athletic department. And that is at no fault of Virginia. Um, that is a fault of our college athletic system. So, you know, if I, if any advocates are listening, um, my hope is that, yes, we can continue this conversation of mental health, but how can we help athletes transition out of sport, um, realizing that they are worthy, they are enough, um, and they have so much to contribute to this world, but they do need those resources to help them through the transition. Absolutely. Bella, Zoe, Campbell, um, I am really proud to have you in my network and to be able to give you this platform to speak just person to person to other athletes who are dealing with chronic illness and the work that you're doing is important in your own individual relationships, as well as, you know, your each of you has a certain platform that you have chosen to utilize this experience to, um, to help others feel not so alone. And I, I do believe that not only did you accomplish that today, but you also probably really helped a lot of people just to feel understood and seen and, um, and to feel hope um, that all is not lost. And so thank you so much for being a part of this with us today. Thank you so much.